Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work, and you can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine, Be in the Know, and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest William Yateman, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Did uh, Montana learn a lesson from Michigan? We'll find out about that. Michael McKenna is a columnist for the Washington Times. We'll be talking about Obamacare and drug pricing reform. And Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture, author of many books, his latest, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier, he co-authored with Buzz Aldrin. Uh, Professor Larry Bell will be with us as well. It is June the 17th, and on this day in 1775, British General Thomas Gage landed his troops on Charleston Peninsula, overlooking Boston, Massachusetts, and led them against Reed's Hill, a fortified American position just below Bunker's Hill. As the British advanced in columns against the Americans, American General William Prescott reportedly told his men, don't one of you fire until you see the whites of their eyes. That's where that came from. When the Redcoats were within 40 yards, the Americans let loose with a lethal barrage of musket fire, throwing the British into retreat. After reforming his lines, Gage attacked again with much the same result. Prescott's men were now low on ammunition, though, and when Gage led his men up the hill for the third time, they reached the redoubts and engaged the Americans in hand-to-hand combat. The outnumbered Americans, think about that, hand-to-hand combat with muskets, <laughs> bayonets. The outnumbered Americans were forced to retreat. However, by the end of the engagement, the uh, Patriots' gunfire had cut down nearly 1,000 enemy troops, including 92 officers. Of the 370 Patriots who fell, most were struck while in retreat. The British had also won the so-called Battle of Bunker Hill, and Breed's Hill and uh, Charleston Peninsula fell firmly under British control. Despite losing these strategic positions, the battle was a moral builder for, our, for Americans, uh, convincing them that patriotic dedication could overcome superior British military might. The British entered the Battle of Bunker Hill overconfident. They had merely guarded Charleston Neck. They could have isolated the Patriots with little loss of life. Instead, Gage had chosen to try to wipe out the Yankees by marching 2,400 men into a frontal assault of the Patriots, a well-defended position on top of the hill. The British would never make that same mistake again. The beginning of uh, the Revolutionary War. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis announced the registration for the 2022 Florida Python Challenge. It's open. It's an annual 10-day event and will be held August the 5th to the 14th. You can count me out. I'm not chasing snakes, but this is kind of interesting. Members of the public are now able to take the required online training and re- register to compete to win thousands of dollars in prizes while removing invasive Burmese pythons from the wild. The competition is open to both professional and novice participants. The Everglades is one of the world's most prized natural resources. We have invested record funding for Everglades restoration projects, including record funding for removal of invasive Burmese pythons, which wreak havoc on the ecosystem, said Governor Ron DeSantis. Because of this focus, we've removed uh, record numbers of invasive pythons from the Everglades. I'm proud of the progress we've made, and I look forward to seeing the results of this year's Python Challenge. In partnership with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the South Florida Water Management District is removing about 60% more pythons each year under the leadership of Governor DeSantis, said South Florida Water Management District Executive Director Drew Bartlett. The Python Challenge is yet another way to get people directly involved in the protection and stewardship of the Everglades. We continue to expedite Everglades restoration efforts, Thanks to the support of Governor DeSantis, and we'll continue doing everything we can to protect this important ecosystem. Uh, visit FloridaFLPythonChallenge.org to register for the competition. That's uh, FLPythonChallenge.org. 
Take the online training, register for optional in-person trainings, learn more about Burmese pythons and the unique Everglades ecosystem, and find resources for planning your trip to the South Florida to participate in the Python Challenge. Uh, participants in the 2021 Python Challenge removed 223 invasive py- Burmese pythons from the Everglades, more than double the number that was removed in 2020. Over 600 people from 25 states registered to take part in the 10-day competition. The Freedom First budget, recently signed by the governor, made a record investment of $3 million for Python removal efforts, including to support research and development of innovative technologies that detect and remove invasive pythons. This includes the development of near-infrared cameras that better detect pythons. Since 2019, the state has taken unprecedented action to remove pythons in Florida. Governor Sanders, FWC, and the Department of Environmental Protection to allow for the removal of invasive pythons from all state parks. The agency entered into an agreement that resulted in an additional 134,648 acres of land that's now accessible for python removal. Governor Sanders announced that the U.S. Department of Interior granted Florida's request to increase access to federal lands for python removal, particularly with the Big Cypress National Preserve. So see, the uh, federal government, the state government can't cooperate, can't they? In addition to python removal efforts on public lands, pythons can be humanly killed on private lands at any time with landowner permission. No permit or gunning, hunting license is required, and the FWC encourages people to remove all and kill pythons from private lands whenever possible. By the way, Bob, Burmese pythons are not native to Florida and negatively impact the native species. They're found primarily in and around the Everglades ecosystem in South Florida, where they prey on birds, mammals, and other reptiles. A female Burmese uh, python may lay 50 to 100 eggs at a time. More than 16,000 pythons have been removed since 2000. 16,000. And again, you can visit myfwc.com slash python for more information. Interesting story. We'll see how we do this year. But uh, we need to get rid of these pythons because they are really a treachery in uh, in the uh, Everglades. President Joe Biden acknowledged Thursday in a new interview that people were not happy under his administration as they were fighting historically high inflation and record high gas prices. People are really, really down. They're really down, he admitted. Biden blamed the coronavirus pandemic for everyone's bad mood, calling for more mental health in the country. Boy, he's... He's right on top of it. The need for mental health in America, there is a need for mental health in America, but it's it's skyrocketed, he said, because people have seen everything upset, everything they've counted on upset, but most of it's the consequence of what happened and what's happened is the consequence of COVID crisis. Well, it's how we've responded to the COVID crisis, Mr. President. For example, the lockdowns, the masking up, and all the things that have been imposed as a consequence of this, I think we could have lived with a COVID not sure we could uh, live with uh, the impositions from the federal government. Biden finally broke his record-long period of over 100 days of not allowing any print or broadcast interviews by participating in a 30-minute Oval Office interview with reporters from the Associated uh, Press. When asked if he was concerned about a recession, Biden denied it was predetermined. First of all, it's not inevitable, he said. Secondly, we're in a stronger position than any nation in the world to overcome this inflation. Now, what he bases that on, I have no idea, but he said it. The majority of Americans believe the United States is heading for a recession, according to a recent poll. A new poll from The Economist and YouGov shows 56% of respondents believe that the country is currently going through a recession. The president urged Americans to ignore the economists who are warning of a looming recession. They shouldn't be believe, uh, believe a warning, he said. They should just say, let's see what uh, which is correct. He uh, denied that his multi-trillion dollar spending agenda, agenda was responsible for sky-high inflation. It's not my fault. <laughs> it's not my fault, he said. Why is it the case that in every major industrial country in the world, the inflation is higher? You ask yourself that, he's asked defiantly. I'm not being a wise guy. He dismissed claims of Republicans who say his reckless spending over overheated the economy and increased inflation. You could argue whether it was on the margin a minor impact on inflation. He said, I don't think it did, and most economists do not. But the idea that it caused inflation is bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre. It did cause inflation. Increased the money supply. 
Biden boasted the United States was prepared to own the second quarter of the 21st century thanks to his leadership. I think he's going into football coach mode at this point. Nevertheless, he said, that's not hyperbole. That's a fact. Well, let's face it. The recession is here. Tomorrow, a metaphor from Jamie Dimon. Uh, the hurricane has smashed onto the coast. The economy hit a wall in early June and keeps nosediving. The stock market sell-off, the collapse in small business confidence, the steeply falling forecast for second quarter GDP growth, which is now a big fat zero, the lousy housing numbers, and the drop in consumer sales are all pointing south. Inflation at 10, 8 to 10 percent is prosperity killer, as, uh, as it, uh, we see. We've seen, I've been warning about this for about 10 months. It'll take very damaging, uh, it will be very damaging unless we see a radical change in the direction and policy from the Fed and the White House and from Congress. This could be calamitous. It's especially heartbreaking because if Trump had been reelected, of course, well, many of us believe he was, but uh, if he, he had been reelected, the economy would be sprinting over hurdles right now. It's also sad because of two years now, all we've heard from Biden and radical big government Democrats is a campaign for, quote, social justice, equity, and ending so-called systemic racism. Yet Bidenomics is causing the biggest reduction in real wages and salaries of the lowest income Americans, with minorities getting hit the hardest. Recent uh, recessions bring deep divides between the rich and the poor. Prosperity, to quote a phrase, lifts all boats. Let's make sure the panicking decision-making in Washington doesn't dig uh, a hole deeper. This is what's happened in response to the financial collapse in 2008, 2008, when the government began massive campaign to bail out banks, financial services, and play favorites. This is what's happened in the first four months of COVID when catastrophic decisions to lock down businesses and then spend trillions of dollars trying to keep the economy functioning caused great long-term damage. Cutting deals with Pelosi and Biden will only make things worse and prolong the recession. The best thing that could happen right now would be for Biden, Kamala, and Pelosi to begin uh, immediately resign. Of course, that's not going to happen. Best for Republicans to come up with a very bold agenda for growth and run it on 2022 and 2024. The left is in the U.S. and across the globe has been yelping for a great reset on capitalist system, by which they mean a wholesale repudiation of free market economics. Biden even more boasted that Milton Friedman isn't calling the shots anymore. That's right. How do you like it? Boy, the results are just absolutely dismal. This command central uh, economy that Biden's trying to run is just total nonsense. By the way, Biden sent a letter to oil companies accusing them of profiteering, but one company fired back. So Exxon said it's invested more than any other company to develop U.S. oil and gas supplies. It's really an interesting response. Don't know if Biden will have a chance to read it. But we're going in the wrong direction. We need to make a correction soon. The segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. 
Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we have with us William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure. William, tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. Uh, we're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. I hope you check it out. So let's uh, just do a little assessment of Biden's leadership right now. Uh, how's he doing in terms of influence and uh, uh, leadership on Capitol Hill? <laughs> it's not looking good. Um, we, we really, we, I guess we've got signs of weakness everywhere. He's got a 38% approval rating, which is terrible. Um, he's facing a midterm shellacking in, in Congress, you know, this upcoming November. Um, they just had a summit of the Americas in New Mexico, in which Mexico, uh, our neighbor to the South and Central American countries didn't even bother to show up, which <laughs> is incredible. Um, but the biggest sign of Biden's sort of continuing weakness or, or absence of influence was a bombshell New York Times story this week. Um, they interviewed 50 uh, Democrat Party insiders from across the country, and the overwhelming consensus was that Biden shouldn't run in 2024, um, which is remarkable. I mean, you know, again, he's the incumbent president, and that just generally does not happen, um, not since LBJ. Um, so it is, uh, uh, the, these, these are not good times for the president. Um, and it doesn't appear as though he's gotten the uh, political relief on the horizon. No, and on top of that, it seems that the uh, press, mainstream media, is beginning to turn on him a little bit. All of a sudden, this Hunter Biden uh, this, uh, laptop and other things are becoming uh, coming to the fore, and the president's being questioned about him. So it looks to me like perhaps knives are coming out, and they uh, <laughs> it could be that the president is going to be tossed under the bus. Well, uh, I'll say this. Uh, you know, an approval rating that low and sort of a string of conspicuous failures uh, will bring out the, the, you know, we'll put a target on your back. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no question. So now let's move to what's happening in Congress. And uh, there's been a big fanfare now for this January 6th committee. They hired the uh, former producer of Good Morning America, I believe, to try and create some hullabaloo about the, the outcome and what's going on. On the other side of it, it seems like uh, some networks, starting with NPR, decided to cancel it, <laughs> not getting the viewership. What are your thoughts? Well, indeed, it doesn't seem to be resonating with the American people, these hearings. I mean, I read this morning that, yes, um, PBS stations across the country canceled the most recent hearing, the one Thursday, or preempted it for uh, episodes of Curious George. Um, so uh, the ratings have been, I guess, uh, small, and uh, I think it's a, because the American people probably are, are focused on more pressing concerns, concerns in the now, things like inflation and record high gas prices, um, as opposed to sort of deliberating 
on something that occurred a year and a half ago. And that's not to diminish in any way, um, you know, what I thought was a ridiculous circus um, on January 6th. But it is to say this, um, it, it does appear that, in essence, this January 6th committee is, is or uh, these hearings are part and parcel of the, the congressional Democrats' uh, midterm reelection campaign. I mean, they very much bundled this into their political messaging. Right. And that sort of gives it the stain of partisanship. Well, and, and it is partisan. In other words, they've excluded uh, certain Republican members from the committee. Uh, they're uh, 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 boxing out certain types of information, like, as I understand it, a, thir- a thousand different uh, photos and uh, videos of what's happened uh, on January the 6th. In other words, I think the American people are wise enough to understand that this is not a legitimate hearing and uh, the truth is not necessarily going to come out. It's basically a political effort. No, I mean, I would say there, uh, look, agreed on the whole. The, 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 I wouldn't say it's not a legitimate hearing insofar as the majority party in the House always gets to call the shots. And they are far more political with these things than the upper chamber in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do agree 100% that I think Americans have sussed that out, that this isn't some sort of um, you know, politically uh, disinterested affair. Um, that, that, to the contrary, again, it's part and parcel of the, the Dems' midterm re-election strategy. Yeah, well, thank you for that perspective. Uh, so let's take a look at uh, what's going on with gun control right now. A lot of hullabaloo, especially after what happened in Texas. And uh, is anything going to come to this? I, I think ultimately it didn't come to fruition this week. Um, they've been negotiating, and as I've spoken, I think, I think the prior two Fridays, Senator John Cornyn out of Texas is, I guess, representing the GOP caucus, Senate caucus in these negotiations, and he's got McConnell's backing, and McConnell has repeatedly um, indicated that they won't get something done, or the, the GOP caucus does. Um, what they seem to be focusing on is uh, two two measures. Uh, on the one hand, this one of these red flaw red flag laws, and as we've noted before, you've got these in Florida. This sets forth the judicial process, which um, the mentally unstable people can be deprived of, of guns. Um, and then the other measure was one that would limit gun rights for those convicted of domestic violence. Um, so. Um, you know, I'm not an, a Second Amendment expert, so I can't really speak to the constitutionality of these measures. I would say, at least with the red flag laws, you know, they, they do seem to be in half the states, including Florida. So I would imagine that, that, that that's relatively inoffensive to the Constitution. I can't speak to the, the other But um, the status of those talks is ongoing. The Senate is out today. Um, that means legislation won't be coming before July 4th. But again... McConnell has put some wind into the sails of this effort, so I do expect them to ultimately put together something. Yeah, I personally have some issues with, even though we have them here in Florida, with the uh, red flag laws. I mean, that cannot be weaponized politically, quite frankly. I mean, when the President of the United States thinks that the ultra-MAGA people are uh, domestic terrorists, (laughs) it seems to me that that would put a a target on the back of anybody who owns a gun who, uh, quite frankly, votes Republican or uh, is a a MAGA follower. So uh, it makes I worry about that. Isn't it a little bit of an affront to the Fourth Amendment? Look, you're speaking to a libertarian, so I share your worries 100%. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not uh, an expert in, in gun legislation nor the Second Amendment, but no, I do. Look, any of these processes can be, you know, leveraged by bad actors to co-opt state power to deprive people of their rights. Mm. Um, so I 100% share your concerns, and I would hope that, um, that those sorts of considerations are taken into account by, and I would imagine they are. I mean, Cornyn's a smart guy, um, but in these ongoing negotiations. Yeah. William Aitman, again, research fellow at the Cato Institute, cato.org, C-A-T-O.org is the website. William, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. 
On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, building a 44,000-square-foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. It could be absolutely fabulous, but also currently bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now and find out more by visiting the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Michael McKinney. He's a columnist with the Washington Times. Right now, we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, but our work is both national and, to some extent, international. We focus on young people of high school and college age. Uh, We seek to inspire and educate them in ideas of individual liberty, private property, and personal character, and we do that through our very robust website, feefee.org, where you'll see daily fresh commentary and also free videos and uh, word about future events and uh, many other interesting things things for people of all ages. Well, for all of ages, again, for kids of all ages, including you and I, but also especially for high school and college-age people, I've been to national conferences for the Foundation for Economic Education to see enthusiasm of these young people about responsibility and and limited government and the whole notion of freedom and uh, liberty. It's just so exciting. So uh, if there's somebody in your life that age, introduce them to uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. There, you wrote such an interesting piece. This really caught my attention. The Michigan lesson Montana may have learned. Maybe you could tell us about it. Okay. Back in the middle part of the 19th century, uh, Michigan, which became a state in 1837, experimented in all kinds of uh, state government subsidized activities. Uh, The governor, the first governor, his name was Stevens Mason, was a 26-year-old, and he thought that nobody would come to Michigan unless he and state government did something special to attract them. If you think of the map, people heading west would have to turn a hard right and go north into a mosquito-infested uh, at least in the summertime, mm-hmm. and then snow-encrusted territory in the <laughs> wintertime. So uh, Governor Mason thought, well, let's have the state build canals and railroads and that kind of thing. And so he jumped headlong into that, and within a matter of uh, just a few years, within a decade, uh, they all went bankrupt. The, the uh, facilities had to be sold off, and Michiganians actually approved an amendment overwhelmingly to the state constitution 
that said state government uh, has to stay out of that stuff and can, cannot get back into the business of subsidizing private companies. Well, Montana, which became a state in 1889, has had several constitutions since that, that year, and every one of them have included provisions to keep state government out of uh, the business of business. Uh, and uh, I think there may be some indication that Montanans learned from the experience of Michigan. It's so interesting to me, Larry, and this uh, it's, it's the obvious, I'm stating the obvious right now, but to me it was kind of an awakening to think that in many cases, uh, at least government projects have started with a great fanfare and a rub ribbon cutting. Yeah. Uh, and a big introduction and so forth with very little follow-through or at least uh, intent to, because the fanfare is not in the follow-through, the fanfare is in the introduction. Whereas exactly. if, it's a, if it's a private business, you know, you're going to put invest your heart and soul in seeing the thing come out to be successful. So the, the intention and the, and the, and the uh, interest is in the opposite ends here. And uh, that's why private or, or government should stay out of private business. Yeah, and in the Michigan case, quite predictably, you had politics uh, getting all infused in the process of these projects from the beginning. Uh, instead of a railroad being built uh, in a relatively straight line, the Michigan state government railroads went in a kind of a zigzag fashion, and that was because uh, legislators lobbied to have the railroad come to their districts or mm -hmm. their towns. And so you know, instead of going for economic reasons to a particular destination, uh, the, the railroads would go all, all over the place just pleasing local legislators who wanted it uh, to go through their town. I think, he's, uh, if I remember correctly, on one of the projects, uh, the, the net gain from, uh, it wasn't even the net gain, the gain, <laughs> from, gain from one of the projects, was it the canals? I forgot now, was like 90 bucks. Yeah, this was the famous uh, Clinton to Kalamazoo Canal in Michigan, uh, and th that's a considerable distance. Uh, they spent 350000 taxpayer dollars on this canal, which is equivalent to millions today, uh, and the total revenue when it was shut down <laughs> was $91. So uh, it, it just wasn't a demand for these uh, state projects when it came to crunch time to actually uh, put them to use. And think about the money. That that was a lot of money back then. So they, they started out in the hole, creating a, a big hole financially for the uh, state government uh, in Michigan. And, of course, as you're pointing out, uh, uh, Montana may have learned something from that. Yeah, as uh, the economist Milton Friedman once put it, um, nobody spends somebody else's money as carefully as he spends his own. <laughs> it is so true. Larry Reed, again, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. I encourage you to visit the very robust website, fee.org. Also, if there's a young person in your life, introduce them to it and, uh, and encourage them to get involved. FEE.org is the website. Larry, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Michael McKenna. He's a Washington uh Times columnist. He wrote some really interesting pieces about Obamacare and drug pricing reform, which seems it would be popular. Needless to say, we'd like to see drug prices be lower, but there's a lot to it, and uh, we're going to be talking about that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. 
Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. Right now we have with us Michael McKenna. He is a columnist with the Washington Times. He's also uh, the president of MWR Strategies. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. You betcha. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Michael. Uh, well, tell us about MWR Strategies. Um, it's a consulting firm. I help uh, folks who have problems with the federal government figure out what to do. <laughs> <laughs> what a great market that is, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to starve, let's put it that way. Yeah. So you wrote such an interesting piece. I wanted to have you on the show. It's about drug pricing reform will kill people, it's called, but also has some great information about what's happening with Obamacare. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, you know, Obamacare has been stuck, right? Um, it, they're supposed to have about 25 million people enrolled. They have a little less than 10 million, I think, as of right this minute, have been stuck now for six or seven years at that point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the individual uh, plans and premiums are pretty expensive because they outlawed all the more modest plans, right? Yeah. So, um, so the the natural answer for the folks in favor of Obamacare was to extend the subsidies, expand them northward, right? So, instead of just um, instead of just poor people getting the subsidies, you now have people, and they did this part of the American Rescue Plan. Um, you now have people getting four times the federal poverty limit yeah. um, line, getting getting subsidies. So you're making 110. You can make as much as 110 thousand dollars a year, and you get these subsidies. So it's um, like I said, you know, the, the original plan didn't work. So the correct answer is always spend more money um, and make it more generous. So, so, so Michael, how much is, is Obamacare an impediment to things like uh, catastrophic care, you know, insurance, uh, having a greater variety of insurance opportunities to, to coverage based on your individual needs? It, does Obamacare get in the way of that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. The the. You know, the Affordable Care Act itself specifically outlaws um, a bunch of different things. You know, it, it, is a, it is an attempt, if you look at it in a certain light, it's an attempt to shoehorn everybody into a certain class of insurance products. So, yeah, it, it you know, not only does it get in the way, it outlaws some of that stuff. So yeah. it, it's, um, it's the exact opposite of, of, of um, you know, a marketplace approach, right, which would have a bunch of different plans and approaches at different price points for everybody. Um, you know, first thing the Affordable Care Act did was get rid of all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a big problem right in the middle of the, of the health insurance system in this country. And, of course, as I recall, the Obamacare was supposed to uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, health care 
is a human right. Is <laughs> it like, uh, for example, the First or Second Amendment? And uh, so this is to protect us. But only 10 million people involved in Obamacare at this point. By is there any by by any measure is this a success? I don't think so. I mean, what the what the folks who who constructed Obamacare either knew and didn't care about or ignored or didn't know, you know, depends on how charitable you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, insurance is not for everybody, right? There's some there's some groups of people who like consciously choose to be uninsured, and there's some people who don't need as much as other people. Right. And you know, it it. it it avoided it it ignored it pretended that all of these gradations in people's preferences for how to insure themselves um didn't exist and so you know all it said was we're going to insure everybody hey not everybody wants to be insured and not everybody wants to be insured at the same level and that's the fundamental original sin of that program, right? Yeah. In my, my choice would be a health savings account with a catastrophic care insurance program. I'm in pretty good health, and uh, so is my wife. So I think we could save a lot of insurance premium by uh, taking that approach and being will, willing to invest our own money in our own health care if, if we have a problem. But uh, it's, un- yeah, it's just- and that And that is, of course, a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You have a different circumstance than probably I do. And you've already thought, okay, I'd like to structure it this way. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, it's not precluded, but it's really complicated by, by, by the way things are set up. So it, it you know, and, and eventually the Republicans are going to, are going to pick the lock on this and fix it. But I don't know how many. I don't know how many years in it eventually. Yeah. So from your lips to God's ear. So let's talk about this. Uh, this other piece here, which is so interesting: drug pricing reform will kill people. That's a pretty bold statement. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah. So one of the things in reconciliation they're talking about to pay for as a revenue raiser in reconciliation, the the ones that you know still is still alive, is. Uh, drug pricing reform, which sounds great. Who could be opposed to drug pricing reform? Mm-hmm. I'd like lower drug prices. Mm-hmm. But what it really means is federal price controls over drug prices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the federal government would negotiate is the word they're using, but federal government doesn't really negotiate with anybody, right? They just take over something. Um, <laughs> it would mean as a practical matter, there'd be about $600 billion less money uh, available for research and development. 660 is the number of the economists. 660 billion is the number of the economists think over the next 15 years to develop drugs. That doesn't sound like much, but it would mean that about 130 life-saving drugs wouldn't get um, wouldn't get created. They wouldn't get invented. They wouldn't be able to be tested, and as a result, you'd have 330 million um, years of life lost. Um, that's a economic, that's an economist term that only an economist could love, but it means uh, essentially um, a bunch of people would die prematurely yeah. who would not have otherwise died prematurely. If you want to think about it another way, it would be about 30 times as lethal as COVID. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, this first came to, you know, this first came to my attention when I was working in the White House and, and I thought, that deserves some sunshine on it. So that's why I wrote the column. Oh, most definitely. And uh, again, so the whole notion of price re- price controls, it's not going to work for us is because it's going to end up uh, uh, reducing and cutting off innovation. Drug companies aren't going to be willing to invest in new opportunities to save lives. But that's not the only way to have a reduction in drug prices, is it? No. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways. The the federal price control is probably the worst way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's but that's the reason why it's chosen is because it. The reason why the reconciliation guys are going are, are going in that direction is because it it means Medicare and Medicaid um, would score lower, right? They would they would require fewer revenues so they could use them as savings. This is not the most efficient way to do it. It's just the most efficient way to to count the beans for the reconciliation. Yeah, I would say uh, having uh, competition. Actually, when you see some things aren't covered in, uh, by insurance, and those things typically where there's competition, we see price reductions substantially because people are competing in the marketplace for the business. So that would that would be my preferred method. Sure. Well, you know, I, I like to think about it a different way, but same same result, right? Um, you know, do you do you trust the federal government to to do this? No, 
<laughs> of course not, right? You know, the, the answer the answer to that question is always no. And they know it, you know, and that's a bipartisan answer to that question. So. Uh, unbelievable. Michael McKenna, again, uh, he is the uh, columnist at the Washington Times. This column uh, appeared in the, in the Washington Times. It's called Drug Pricing Reform Will Kill People. I hope you'll check it out. Michael, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Professor Larry Bell. Well, Professor Bell is... Uh, was really a big a big name in the space program back in the day before Obama cut it uh, shut it off, uh, and uh, he's owned companies major companies with regard to the space program. Uh, now he's uh, writing books. His latest he's written about ten books. His latest is Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, pioneering the space frontier. He co-authored with Buzz Aldrin. He also writes his column for Newsmax about three times a week. His latest Biden ethanol increase will worsen food costs and gas pains. That's something I'd like to talk to him about. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. As I mentioned before the break, we have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of many books, his latest, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. He co-authored this book with uh, Buzz Aldrin. And also writes his column for Newsmax.com. On Point is the name of the column. His latest column, Biden Ethanol Increase Will Worsen Food Costs, Gas Pains. Uh, Professor Bell, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Well, Bob, good morning to you and good morning to your listeners. Thank you so much, Professor. So, uh, t- you know, this topic of ethanol has been so interesting for so many years. I think Al Gore is the guy that got pretty much, pretty much got, got us involved with ethanol. Uh, maybe you could tell us about the column and, and your thoughts about ethanol. Yeah, ethanol is really lousy stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I don't have to mention to anybody that, you know, the economy is really bad right now and that, uh, you know, inflation and gas prices and and uh, also diesel prices, which are in costs, which are driving up all the commodities, including food and so on. So, through very difficult times there. 
self-inflicted, they're largely energy-related and energy policies that have to do with run carbons, final fossil energy, which is a whole whole litany of, of foolish errors and went from being an energy uh, independent and dominant country to uh, energy pauper, where now we're, we have a president that's meeting with OPEC and Iran and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and so on. Even We've even gotten Russian oil you know, for bailouts because of because of the problems and so on. Mm-hmm. So, like like most bad ideas, it doubles down on them and say, "Well, you know, they've got a huge Democrats have a huge uh, problem going into the midterms, not not so far in the future." And uh, the inflation and these costs are really you know, filling up your car with a hundred dollars worth of gasoline or more is uh, really difficult for a lot of families lose their budgets and so on. So kind of a Hail Mary say, well, we'll increase the cup for the gasoline deficit at the pump by putting in more ethanol. We go from maximum of E10, which is 10% ethanol added, to E15, or 15%. And uh, and somehow that's going to make people feel like stretching their money because ethanol is a little bit less expensive than gasoline, maybe ten cents or more. But the dirty little secret is it's it's lousy fuel. It's it's alcohol, and uh, you get lousy mileage out of it. It's absolutely no environmental benefit whatsoever. You know, it doesn't reduce carbon emissions when you look at. It takes to grow it and cultivate it and convert it into alcohol, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's and it's really hard. Not, and it takes up a lot of irrigation water for the corn. It displaces corn we eat and food we eat with with corn needed for feedstock. About forty percent of the corn goes for feedstock, and it produces smog. And, and there's really nothing good you can say about it other than. You know, perhaps it, it's good for farmers, but it's a uh, it's a very uh, fertilizer intensive crop. It has runoff. It takes lots of irrigation water in most areas, and uh, there's you know, and of course then it, it ripples into beef costs, pork costs, egg costs, sure, egg costs, etc. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's 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 a double whammy in the sense that if if we're taking corn away from uh, feedstock and uh, being able to serve corn on our tables and we're putting it into our gas tanks, it's uh, that uh, is creating more scarcity, isn't it, for food? Yeah, it, you know, it's uh, it's also something we we typically export. So it's a for, for agriculture, you know, our corn crops are. You know, for you know, feeding you know parts of the world, you know, and 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 displacing grains that we can grow and so on. So, and this at a time when Ukraine, of course, is is a country that is a great agriculture country and produces lots of grains as well. So, I think this is really just really a hail mary. It's it's I think a very transparent attempt to. Try to show you're doing something to help economy or help people, and it's really not. It's really, it's really uh, adding to a disaster, and it's simply to try to get through the midterm crisis that they have, which I think is is quite large. They're doing everything they can to discourage companies from drilling because you know companies see that you know. It's, it's, Anything they do right now, first of all, they can't afford it because they can't they can't get investment money. But second of all, realize this you know, it's just a desperate a desperate move right now for the administration. Not there's no signal that they're going to change their policies to yeah. gotten us into this mess. Absolutely, and uh, just underscore a point you made because I think this is important. Uh, ethanol is not efficient. It's not efficient as efficient as uh, carbon-based fuel, 
And uh, is there any increase in the mileage on, uh, you know, that, uh, that we get? In other words, I think it probably adds to the cost rather than reduces the cost of fuel. It only yields about two-thirds as much of net energy as, as gasoline. So when you, when you put it in your tank, it, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the energy density that gasoline has. And, and then, as I briefly mentioned before, when you, you consider that uh, you know, you, the, the farmers have to cultivate the corn, which means they, they, they drive a tractor. Mm-hmm. Fuel. And then they irrigate into the field, and then they and, and they and they fertilize the field, and then they then the, the stuff has to be converted. Trans, the corn has to be transported, converted into alcohol, and that takes energy. You look at that. There's no net energy benefit mm-hmm. uh, to the planet or to to anything. It's just simply converting. It's so. Although it's been touted as a renewable fuel, it's anything but that. No fuel-saving energy benefit whatsoever when you, when you consider what it takes to to create it. And so when then you factor in, you know, the driving the tractor and all these other things I mentioned, there's no net. No one can no one can account for any reduced carbon emissions uh, from that. Matter of fact, you're Taking green uh, plants out of circulation for corn, which is not, it doesn't nearly have the CO2 conversion capabilities that other green plants do, actually convert carbon dioxide to oxygen that we breathe. Hmm. It's, it's environmentally destructive as heck. You know, it was stuff because corn has shallow roots and so on. Plant it, you know, in 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 often it's near lakes and rivers and so on. They fertilize it. The roots won't hold the you know the you know the nutrients and, and the fertilizer and so on, which runs off into into and deplete you know into our uh, lakes and river waterways. And we use the water to deplete aquifers, contaminate the you know the surface with the pollution. And uh, on top of that, particularly in the summer, where, where they're upping the, the, the amount of ethanol, uh, typically ethanol is, re- is reduced during the summer months because the nitrogen and oxygen smog creates yeah. respiratory diseases. And E15, which is a, a, a greater blend, uh, increases that, not to mention increases refinery costs. Yeah. The refineries have always been driven out of business by Biden policies. Really unbelievable. And qu- quite frankly, in my opinion, I'd, I appreciate your thoughts on this, is if we just simply re-engaged and made ourselves focus on creating energy here in the United States, drill, 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 baby drill, as they used to say, and uh, use the other uh, resources that we have, we could actually make ourselves in, uh, energy independent and get rid of all this nonsense. Ethanol, I think ethanol was really uh, initially just a, a, a ploy on the part of, uh, uh, what's his name? I forgot now, Do, uh, to uh, to get votes in Iowa. So, and and Gore, it was Gore. Yeah. And Gore admitted that later. He admitted it, he did it politically, and it wasn't such, wasn't such a great idea. But we've, we need to invest in, yes, in energy, and we're, well, we haven't developed any any modern nuclear capabilities for a very long time. We're losing those capabilities. We hydropower uh, is is very important in certain parts of the country, but we we're not building more dams in in places with hydropower and and uh, you know geothermal is a very limited you know you know kind of source and wind and solar are are just greatly overestimated. I mean, they're less than 4% of our energy comes from them. They're intermittent, environmentally disastrous, and not, not just killing birds, but, but what they do to the landscape. They, you know, they only, they're, they're, their operating life is only about 14, 15 years. Yeah. Then you've got a, a forest of junk, you know, and it 
junk didn't come free. Yeah, exactly. Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston uh, at Space Architecture, encouraged you to take a look at his new book, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier, co-authored with Buzz Aldrin. Also, uh, on point, his column in Newsmax.com. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Bob, I always enjoy it. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Professor. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, on Monday, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. As we usually do, we'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed, uh, president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, will be joining us, as well as Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington bureau chief and author of many books, his latest, No Problem. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Great weekend as well. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.